0: Hello and welcome to the Ecobusiness Podcast. My name is Tim Ha and I'm a correspondent at Ecobusiness. Today we're going to talk about a topic that is often absent from discussions on the clean energy transition, human rights. Renewables are absolutely critical if the world is to have any chance of avoiding climate catastrophe. But did you know that in 2018 alone, 17 people lost their lives defending their lands against hydropower projects? Or that the vast majority of companies that mine minerals used in solar panels, wind turbines, and electric vehicles are riddled with exploitation? When it comes to attacks on human rights activists, the violation of indigenous people's rights, and child labor, the renewable energy sector is in fact the third worst in the world, coming in only behind the mining and agribusiness industries. A discussion on the sector's human rights-related challenges is timely, given that calls are growing louder for a just energy transition that both tackles climate change and protects people. On today's podcast, Jessie Cato, from an international non-profit organization called the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, joins us from Berlin to shed light on the human rights issues facing this sector and to highlight potential solutions to address them. Jessie and her colleagues help communities and local NGOs around the world to get companies to take human rights concerns seriously and urge firms to respond to allegations. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Jesse, when most people think of renewables, they think of something that's inherently good. Why then are there human rights challenges in the sector? Where do these violations occur? And are there specific clean energy sources that are worse than others?
1: Yeah, it's. Great question. So um, at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, we see the renewable energy sector as absolutely central to the transition to a net zero carbon global economy. And we see that transition itself as a human rights imperative. We know that climate change will impact all people, but that it will disproportionately impact the most vulnerable people. And so as a human rights organization, we have a vested interest in seeing this sector succeed which won't happen if the work of the sector isn't undertaken in a rights-respecting way. What we've seen um, at the Resource Centre is a concerning rise in allegations of human rights abuses in the renewable energy sector. And in the last 10 years, we've collected nearly 200 allegations of abuse related to renewable energy projects, and that's across all regions of the world. And those numbers are rising, so we're on track this year for the largest numbers yet. We see allegations occur across the value chain. So there are those that occur as a direct consequence of renewable energy projects and those that happen further up the supply chain, so around mining sites for minerals that are used in renewable energy technology. And the type of impacts we see are similar in nature to human rights allegations that you often see associated with large extractive projects. So land right violations, displacement, indigenous right violations, harassment of human rights defenders and occasionally violence and threats against local communities, but particularly those communities that um, voice opposition to projects. Um, As I mentioned, allegations happen in every region, but Latin America stands out as the highest amount um, where we see allegations and uh, Latin America represents 61% of our allegations globally. And we also see it across um, both Um, all the five subsectors of renewable energy. So wind, solar, bioenergy, geothermal energy, and hydropower. However, hydropower is the subsector that has the most allegations. Um, It's important to note that there is debate about the inclusion of hydropower in renewable energy. Um, given the negative ecological and climate impacts of these type of projects. But we choose to include it, um, not just because many investors and governments consider it renewable, but so that we have scrutiny on this subsector to monitor human rights considerations in addition to the environmental considerations. All of that being said, it's important to note that there's no region and no energy source that has zero human rights allegations. Um, Another similarity when comparing large grid-scale renewable projects to extractive projects is that they often have a significant land footprint and really long supply chains. And so in that sense, it's not really a surprise that the renewable energy industry carries many of these human rights risks.
0: Interesting, yeah. It's it's in fact really worrying how widespread these issues are. So, Jesse, you and your colleagues at the Business and Human Rights Centre recently published the first ever benchmark that ranks for renewable energy companies based on their human rights performance. Tell us more about the report and what you found.
1: Yeah, we did. So, I mean, one of the tasks we undertake at the Resource Center um, is helping communities and NGOs in getting companies to address their human rights concerns. So we take up alleged abuse quickly and directly with the companies themselves, and then we provide companies an opportunity to present their response in full. Um, We take these either through media monitoring where we find allegations or through um, our partners or other civil society organizations approaching us for assistance. And our global response rate across all sectors from companies has grown to about 75%. As I mentioned though, with allegations relating to renewable energy projects increasing and increasing with the same amount of urgency that we need this energy transition, we want to ensure that our work Puts forward a transition that's not just fast but fair. So in August we launched the Renewable Energy and Human Rights Benchmark, and this benchmark looks at 16 of the largest publicly traded wind and solar energy companies in the world. Um, and we chose to focus on wind and solar for the pilot benchmark due to the rapid expansion of those technologies as compared to the other renewable energy subsectors. So. The way we put this together is a result of three years of research, analysis and global consultations and it establishes the first ever set of indicators against which renewable energy companies' human rights policies and their practices can be evaluated both at an individual company level but also in comparison to their industry peers. What we saw, unfortunately, was... Um, The benchmark suggests that none of the companies analysed are currently fully meeting their responsibility to respect human rights as defined by the UN guiding principles. Nearly half of the companies we benchmark scored below 10%, three quarters scored below 40%, and the average score across um, the 16 companies was just 22%. Um, And this really indicates to us that as a whole, the industry has a long way to go to demonstrate um, its respect for human rights of communities and workers in its operations and in its supply chains. We also notice that there's a lack of human rights policy strongly correlates with allegations of abuse. There's a significant number of allegations related to land grabbing featured in the benchmark, and that was reflected in the fact that no companies scored points for having policies to respect land rights, to govern their processes of land acquisition, um, or on um, relocation of residents. Um, And when we look at the average score across the 13 core indicators that were developed and the indicators that represent the most basic human rights responsibilities, um, the average score of companies was 33%. So although this is a low score, it is actually on par with other high-risk industries, and that includes the traditional extractive sector.
0: We spoke previously, and you told me that you engage with these companies to get them to respond to these allegations. How do these companies react to these findings and especially to these allegations?
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, one of the reasons we put the benchmark together is to provide a roadmap for the renewable energy industry to better understand their human rights responsibilities, um, but also to encourage them to start adopting policies and practices that can help prevent abuse. Um, And as mentioned earlier, the company outreach is a central part to our work. So Allegations of human rights violations is not something that has been time-specific. It occurs regularly. And we always approach the companies at the time to give them a right to respond to these allegations. Because that's that way of working within our organization, none of the allegations that were collected by the benchmark were new to the companies in the sense that we hadn't previously approached them to respond to this. Um, And we did get responses back once the um, benchmark was launched to the benchmark itself. Um, There were certainly companies that didn't agree with their scores um, and there were companies that chose not to engage with the consultative process. One of the companies covered felt that it didn't acknowledge other public commitments they have to upholding human rights standards, Um, but they were also a company that didn't respond to multiple contact requests we made to them. Um, I think overall, though, more companies saw it as a positive and as an opportunity to improve. Um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is a lot of companies actually like benchmarks because it gives them an opportunity not only to see how they're doing, but how the competition is doing. So it actually has like a positive flow on effect of creating a race to the top for these companies. And we definitely saw that in some of our feedback where um, companies were pleased with where they had pos- Um, placed, while also acknowledging that it was helpful for them to identify specific areas they needed to improve on. Or one company said it was going to help them mature their human rights response, which I think was really great feedback when you acknowledge that the renewable energy sector is a new sector. Um, We've also been told by companies um, that it's a useful tool for them Um, not just externally but internally so that, um, you know, uh, the staff that sit within the sustainability sector or um, were part of the involvement with the benchmark methodology are able to take this um, to other staff and to senior leadership and promote changes and improvements to human rights policies within the company. Um, And lastly, I think we've already had um, companies ask when we, uh, sorry, companies ask when we will run it again. Um, And so we feel that it was really well received by that fact as well.
0: It's really good to hear that they welcome that feedback and that input and that they've obviously begun to take these issues seriously. Before we get to solutions, I'd like to talk about the coronavirus pandemic, which started off as a public health crisis a few months ago and now impacts pretty much every area of sustainable development that you can possibly think of. So, given that countries are pretty keen to restart their economies, um, has COVID-19 had any impact on human rights in the clean energy sector at all?
1: It's definitely had an enormous impact on the mining sector as a whole. Um, And it's had an enormous impact, um, you know, as most people are aware on every sector. Every year, the Resource Centre takes up hundreds of grassroots allegations of corporate human rights abuse. Um, And what we've seen over the pandemic is that this has been magnified many times over. It's from multiple sectors facing various issues from unpaid wages, um, severance, pay removal to union busting. Um, And the mining sector hasn't been immune to any of those. There was a report published by a coalition of civil society organizations and it was called Voices from the Ground, How the Global Mining Industry is Profiting from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And it used case studies to analyze and identify key trends in the mining industry's response. And what it found was that mining companies are ignoring the threats of the pandemic and continuing to operate, but also that mining companies and governments are using the crisis to secure regulatory change that favors the industry. Um, and part of that was uh, part of that report was bringing um, allegations to the company. So there were 22 companies named in that report that the resource centre followed up with, and only six of them didn't respond. But I think while the pandemic is still ongoing, it's really just reinforced the urgency and necessity. Um, of building global economic systems that are both equitable and sustainable because it's just highlighted the unequal practices um, and the injustice that is um, underlying a lot of the sectors.
0: Right. Let's hope that some of these these ideas are actually put into practice that have come up during the pandemic. Absolutely. So, So let's talk about solutions. As you mentioned, companies currently lack the policies needed to identify, avoid and remedy human rights violations. So, could you talk about how better corporate policies could actually help to tackle these issues?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, firstly, um, you know, the UN guiding principles um, state that companies need to identify, um, prevent and mitigate um, any adverse human rights impacts um, through effective human rights due diligence. However, one of the things we really strongly support at the Resource Centre is a mandatory human rights due diligence system. Um, The uh, the EU has plans to develop um, a legislative proposal uh, by 2021. And that will require businesses to carry out due diligence in relation to potential human rights impacts, uh, to environmental impacts, and that will be in their operations and supply chains. So for us, this is a huge step in stopping irresponsible companies from creating unnecessary harm. Um, And it also massively increases their risk from negligent or unscrupulous behaviour. In renewable energy specifically, um, companies that work in this space are often interested in this topic anyway because they see themselves as having a social mission. They want to do good um, and therefore, you know, mandatory human rights due diligence gives them an opportunity and the guidance um, to put in place strong procedures to address those risks before they cause harm to affected communities and to workers. But I think when you're speaking about companies, the other um, stakeholder dimension is obviously investors because they play a really important role too. Um, they have a pivotal role in shaping the transition to low-carbon economies. And it's up to investors as well to set the expectation for companies that they need to respect human rights and they need to engage with meaningful um uh, have meaningful engagement with communities and it's not optional and they must challenge the companies that are doing too little in this space. There's also like an enormous amount of international initiatives um, from the public sector, the private sector, coming from international financial institutions that provide financial support or logistical support or technical support to renewable energy projects. And they can use that influence as well to require companies to have strong human rights um, and adopt stronger measures. Um, It's not only a moral issue when looking from the business perspective and the investor perspective, um, it has a cost to companies and investors when they don't follow due diligence. There's an example um, of a wind farm in Kenya, uh, the Kinengop Wind Park. and That was planned to come online by mid-2015 and provide electricity to around 150,000 homes by 2018. Um, However, it was cancelled because of disputes around land compensation, fears of forced displacement, issues um, related to environmental or health concerns and it led to a lot of local protests and eventually the local community actually just filed a lawsuit to stop the project until the company had been able to answer their questions. But the protests made any construction impossible and the developers actually depleted their funds um, and that forced them to cancel the project. The cost to shareholders of that project because that project was canceled because they didn't have community consent was 66 million US dollars. Um, Conversely, what you see a lot, um, well, sorry, what you see happening, not a lot more we would like to see um, across Canada, in particular, is Indigenous communities that have a significant stake in clean energy projects, and that involvement ranges from impact benefit agreements to direct ownership of projects. Um, there's a Indigenous-owned c- company, W Dusk Group, and they design, build, and develop wind and other renewable energy projects alongside with the communities. The company consults with councils of elders. Um, it consults on the project and the community shares the benefit from the electricity produced. So this community-driven approach helps ensures that it has a strong social licence for the project and that it maximises benefits for the community and the company. So I think reflecting on that, we definitely know there's a better way for companies and renewable energy companies to go around this, and we really hope that that's an approach that more companies are going to take in the future.
0: Right. Let's hope some of these companies are listening so you, you touched quite a bit on mineral mining earlier, which like you said is is a major source of human rights violations in the industry. Another report that your organization released last year also warned that this is just gonna get worse. That's because the demand of minerals used in solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries for electric vehicles could actually increase ninefold by twenty fifty. So what are current approaches and frameworks that seek to prevent exploitation in these mines? Why aren't they working? and what could be done to improve them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and I think it's an obvious question of why aren't they working? Um, But it's fair to acknowledge that there are actually, like there are a huge amount of approaches. There are global approaches like the UN guiding principles or the OECD due diligence guidance um, for responsible supply chain of minerals from conflict areas. There are also mining specific mechanisms. So there's the Initiative for Responsible Mining Insurance or IRMA or the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative or the EITI amongst many others. And then there's also certification schemes for different commodities um, like Coppermark. So it's not that they necessarily aren't working and all of these initiatives help raise the bar on global standards. It's just a really complex area and it isn't solved by one action And that's why it's important to keep monitoring the entire value chain. Um, I think addressing the voluntary nature of some of these mechanisms is important. And again, that's why we push for mandatory human rights due diligence, because it requires companies to ensure that human rights abuses are not happening along their supply chains. And it leads to more transparency and accountability in what is notoriously opaque, complex and often massive supply networks. Um, Some of your larger global motor vehicle tech brands can have up to 15,000 suppliers. So the complexity of supply chains is also part of why some of these aren't or haven't maybe had the success that people want to see. Um, There's a growing acknowledgement that that complexity plays a huge role in allowing human rights abuses to continue and in remedying the situation, mapping those supply chains. So there's more coverage now looking at critical bottleneck minerals such as cobalt and lithium, but actually the array of minerals needed to produce these technologies is much broader. Mapping supply chains um, and bringing more transparency to supply chains is daunting, but it is absolutely necessary if we want to see success in stamping out these violations. Um, And it's not just civil society, um, business and investors have shown strong support for these regulations. A lot of companies support mandatory regulations, not just for their own assurance in how they operate and assurance to their stakeholders, but it does level the playing field, um, particularly around these really valuable minerals. It stops more unscrupulous companies um, undercutting others and it provides equal access to to these minerals, but a fair playing field for everyone um, to be opening their supply chains to scrutiny. So due diligence is definitely the first step. Um, If we look at the renewable energy benchmark, however, we have an indicator on risk identification and mitigation in mineral supply chains, and none of the companies actually scored points on that indicator. So a lot of work still to be done there.
0: Indeed, yeah. And I guess the fact that many of these minerals are mined in countries that are politically fragile doesn't make it easier either, right?
1: No, absolutely.
0: So, Jesse, what's the role of governments in all this, in tackling these problems?
1: I mean, governments have a central role to play, Um, not just under the UN guiding principles where they have a duty to protect human rights. Governments are also responsible for promoting renewable energy for climate transition targets. Um, So there's an opportunity for governments to create a responsible industry from the start because the industry is new. But governments are also responsible for bringing in legislation that tackles not just the climate crisis but lifts the floor of corporate behaviour. And so both the home governments of these companies should adopt stronger requirements for companies to do human rights due diligence um, the way that they do um, environmental impact assessments, they should be looking at human rights impact assessments. But the host governments where these projects are located can incorporate stronger protections into their own national energy policy, policies and energy plans. So the role of government in being able to legislate and control um, those sort of policies um, plays an enormous role in being able to stop these violations from occurring to, um, from the beginning.
0: Indeed. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the risks that companies face if they don't take these issues seriously. But the sector as a whole, why should the sector be worried about human rights problems that are occurring Mm. at the moment?
1: I mean, to be honest, it's like it's pretty straightforward. Um, Climate change is the most prominent threat to human rights and therefore climate transition is absolutely necessary. Negative human rights records of renewable energy companies threaten the development of renewable energy and they ultimately then threaten the success of the energy transition. We really want renewable energy companies to get ahead of this problem and act now and to start putting the right policies in place and changing their practices so that the sector can continue to grow because it benefits all of us. Um, And we're optimistic that the renewable energy sector can grow in a rights-respecting way. There are lots of opportunities to engage and intervene now to ensure that that happens. Um, And certainly from our perspective, we believe that tools like the Renewable Energy Benchmark really help in that process as well.
0: So if the industry were to ignore these concerns, it really wouldn't be doing itself a favor.
1: It wouldn't be doing itself a favor. It wouldn't be doing any human a favor.
0: Indeed, yeah. (laughs) I think that wraps it up very nicely and it's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast, Jesse.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.